Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's, the University of Louisville, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Sadie Rodriguez, and by Dr. Jeffrey Alton and Dr. Kat Gist. Um, Today, we are going to talk about the epidemiology of acute kidney injury after neonatal cardiac surgery. Dr. Gist and Dr. Alton had a paper published in Critical Care Medicine in October of 2021, reviewing a multi-center report from the Neonatal and Pediatric Heart and Renal Outcomes Network, which we're gonna discuss today. So I'll start off by having everyone introduce themselves. Sadie, would you like to start? Hey, Deanna. Um, thanks for joining us, Jeffrey and Kat. My name is Sadie Rodriguez. I am a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jeffrey Alton here. Um, I'm one of the cardiac intensivists in Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Hi, and thanks for the uh, very cool opportunity. I'm Kat Gist. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist and co-director of the Center for Acute Care Nephrology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Well, welcome, and thank you both so much um, for taking time out of your day. Just to get started, tell us a little bit about what the Nephron Collaborative is and how it got started, kind of what the impetus was, and what the what the goals are. Nephron started back in about 2016. We started talking about it, and in 2017, we actually came together, and it was uh, meant to kind of systematically and comprehensively uh, acute kidney injury after cardiac surgery. We got together with um, uh, multiple cardiac intensivists around the country and some, and some cardiac surgeons and, and importantly, some uh, pediatric nephrologists, all who had a shared um, desire to study acute kidney injury in this population. We tried to gather up all the people who um, recognize experts in this field, and that's why Kat's on this phone and I'm part of the collaborative. I'm, I'm really not an expert in the field. I'm just a person who brings people together, and that's one of my strengths and expertise. And um, and so we've been able to get uh, people like uh, David Askenazi and Dave Saluski, who are two recognized, very um, well-known, well-respected, well-researched uh, uh, nephrologists in, the, in this field, and a lot of other cardiac intensivists who, uh, like myself, who kind of uh, part-time have a lot of interest in kidney injury afterwards. And so, you know, one of the, one of the things that... Um, is very true with uh, acute kidney injury after cardiac surgery in kids, as we all know it happens. But there's really, um, up, to this, up to this manuscript, which we're going to talk about, there really hasn't been a kind of a multi-center look at the risk factors and outcomes with acute kidney injury. And actually, a little bit of a debate about what actually the best definition to use in this, in this population is. And all of us who take care of patients at the bedside um, for years have seen kids who have very high creatinines after surgery, and they just keep on peeing and seem to have no consequence. Um, then there's some kids who make no urine for a little while um, and then just start making urine and don't seem to have consequence. And then there's some who have a mildly elevated creatinine and then and then get into a lot of trouble and need uh, renal replacement therapy. Uh, so it's it's always been kind of confusing. And the KDIGO criteria, which I'll let Kat, who's more of an expert, me talk about more in just a second, it's kind of the recognized current um, consensus definition that we use in kids and neonates. And what we noticed uh, in some of the single center studies in my early stuff is that when we um, 
tried to use this criteria to define kids who had kidney injury, it didn't seem to really um, find the children who had bad outcomes after having kidney injury. So in other words, uh, it seemed to be that we were diagnosing a whole bunch of kids with kidney injury, but it didn't seem to make much of a difference, at least in acute phase. Uh, we're not going to talk about chronic kidney injury now, but that certainly is a, a different question with different answers potentially. Um, so ultimately, uh, we said, well, when we look at studies, uh, all these single center studies and two center studies that are out there, uh, kidney injury rate is like 15 to 70 percent, very variable across studies. Um, the risk factors were different. Um, and the, the population studies were different, and we just wanted to put together um, a, a study that would look at acute kidney injury after surgery. We decided to, for our first um, attempt, what, to kind of um, go after the, the kids who have a disproportionate amount of kidney injury, and that's of the neonates. Um, that's one thing we do know is that neonates seem to have more acute, acute kidney injury after surgery than the other populations. And so our first kind of a, a planned study, a group of studies with the nephron collaborative was to look at the neonatal population specifically. And so we, back in 2017 and 18, um, went about a big journey of uh, uh, trying to recruit centers to recruit um, neonates um, into, into this study. And so the big plan was, okay, so we wanted to be able to look at multi-center, but we wanted to try to make it as foolproof as possible. We wanted to study every single kind of uh, covariate we could, um, you know, and, and just make it uh, uh, as, as uh, foolproof as possible. And they had the answers at the end. Um, so what we did was we paired with uh, the PC4 data set. Um, and those who know PC4, um, PC4, of course, is a quality registry that um, um, most people who are listening to this podcast are familiar with. But if you're not, it it um it, it encompasses uh, all the it encompasses about 60 uh, maybe about 70 now uh, uh, cardiac uh, ICUs pediatric cardiac ICUs in in the U.S. and some abroad actually, um, and so what this is is that it is a very uh, data granular da data set. So every single kid at all these centers that gets admitted um, to the cardiac ICU, um, some who have surgery, some who don't. Um, have data collected, all very granular, robust, um, preoperative data, interoperative data, and postoperative data, uh, pretty much studying and looking at every single risk factor and outcomes that are associated with being in the pediatric cardiac ICU. So this data set was, was, is very powerful. We then created a, a nephron data set. And the nephron data set um, en encompassed very granular um, creatinine details and fluid output details, fluid balance details, and some of the other exposures that people who study kidneys are um, very interested in. And so our plan was we could, we could collect a whole bunch of uh, neonates around the country um, at these centers and um, spend about you know, an hour or so on each patient and take advantage of the five or six hours of uh, data collection that uh, each one of these patients had elsewhere within PC4. And so at the end of it all, what we had is we could follow kidney injury in all these kids and look at all the risk factors and outcomes very granularly um, at, at these centers. And um, um, we ultimately recruited about 22 centers, I think it was. 
we got each of these centers to include consecutive neonates, so none of them were excluded. So um, starting at the time when the study started, the data collection started, the going backwards, we asked each center to collect 100 to 150 neonates and then um, submit them to the data set. So they, what that means is that all these centers collected all the detailed Nephron data set. We then combined it with their PC4 data set and we had an incredible comprehensive data set. It was just as simple as that. Um, it took a long time to collect data. We ended up with um, 2,300 neonates, so incredibly huge study. Um, it's never been approached even close before in our field, so we were so excited to have this data set and so excited to get study, uh, to study it. And um, the epidemiology manuscript that we're going to talk about today is kind of the, the first multi-center look at acute kidney injury in neonates after cardiac surgery. Um, and with the overall goal is that at the end of all this is that we think that we're going to need to define a new um, definition of uh, acute kidney injury in this population. That's our overall arching goal. Um, and, and we're getting closer and closer to that as we, as we um, kind of uh, plow through all the projects that we use with this data set. Yeah, if I could just add that, I think, you know, the other focus was to really understand how um, cardiac surgery would, was affecting kidney function. And so, uh, you know, not so much looking at the patients who had cardiac arrest or need for ECMO or all these other factors that could compound the development of acute kidney injury. So really just describing what we see from cardiac surgery itself and early on in, in the postoperative course and, and even some of the preoperative factors uh, that could lead to the development of AKI during the first week um, following the cardiac surgery. And it was very large and um, astounding effort that even included kids who did not um, have uh, bypass. And, um, you know, that topic uh, alone is at, uh, for another time as that paper was recently accepted at the Annals of Thoracic Surgery. Well, I just want to take a moment to commend you both and your whole team for this tremendous effort. I mean, just the patient cohort that you're describing is absolutely incredible. And to be able to have such power to look at these questions, I think is really powerful and meaningful for the clinicians and for just scientific discovery. And I just wanted to vocalize that on behalf of all of the field. If we could, I guess, dive into the paper a little bit. So as um, Jeffrey uh, so eloquently described, I mean, we included a very large number of neonates. They were uh, 2,240 subjects included. Most of them underwent surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass, so around 1,600, and then a smaller proportion, obviously, uh, not needing bypass. Uh, we were able to capture things like uh, age at surgery, whether or not these children were fed um, preoperatively, obviously their surgical uh, risk stratification by measure of the stat um, mortality categories. And then we're really able to describe um, how AKI developed over the first um, post-operative week. Getting into the meat of it, uh, the vast majority of the population was made up of patients with single ventricle heart disease, uh, a third of them, 30% of them. 70% of them were patients who had uh, very high stat mortality categories, so the four and five range. Um, acute kidney injury uh, was incredibly common among this cohort, occurring in um, more than 50% of the population. But when you look at it broken down by center, there were some centers who had no AKI and some centers who had um, upwards of 70% AKI, so just very, very, very large heterogeneity. 
Similar to the other epidemiological studies that have been reported among other types of critically ill children, the vast majority of patients fall into uh, the stage one category. So that would be a one and a half fold increase in uh, creatinine or a 0.3 milligram per deciliter increase or a decrement in urine output. And you know, I think that's one of the real advantages of this paper is that we encompass the urine output criteria into the definition, which largely is excluded for, you know, a variety of reasons, difficulty capturing that particular metric um, because of lack of an indwelling Foley catheter or, you know, whatever it may be. And we just took the data for what it was to be able to get that um, important information. Um, so by the same token, um, you know, those who had stage three AKI occurred in less than 10 percent and um, just under 20 percent um, had stage two, which would be a doubling of creatinine. And the stage three would be a tripling or um, need for renal replacement therapy. The number of patients who needed renal replacement therapy in the population um, uh, was really, really, really small. When we looked at the distribution of how AKI occurred during the first postoperative week, you know, I think that really speaks to where we're getting at with the definition in that it, not all acute kidney injury is created equally, and there's so many different factors that can affect its onset and duration. And so irrespective of the stage of acute kidney injury, the vast majority occurred on post-op day zero and post-op day one, and most of it had actually even resolved by post-operative day three. The patients who um, had stage three acute kidney injury uh, or late progression of um, stage three acute kidney injury actually had oliguria as the primary way in which they met the, the criteria for acute kidney injury. And that was um, evaluated through the seventh postoperative day. You know, we took the study as, as most epidemiology studies do, looking at both the risk factors for acute kidney injury development, as well as the factors that are associated with both, both mor morbidity and mortality. And what we found for the risk factors for acute kidney injury development was that the use of cardiopulmonary bypass was associated with AKI, uh, preoperative feeding and an open sternum following surgery had protective effects. And, um, you know, we could discuss the reasons for uh, why we might have found that um, particular association. But um, uh, when we looked at the cardiopulmonary bypass cohort separately, uh, bypass duration did not really impact AKI development. When we um, evaluated the uh, risk factors for morbidity and mortality, acute kidney injury was not associated with any morbidity, uh, speaking specifically of length of stay and duration of ventilation. But for mortality, uh, different from other epidemiology studies, only stage three acute kidney injury was associated with mortality. And I just want to highlight again that most of the patients who developed stage three AKI were defined by urine output criteria. So I'll uh, pause there and see if there's any uh, other thoughts, and then we can sort of discuss the importance of these findings. One of the things that I thought was interesting is the discordance between the urine output criteria and the creatinine criteria. When you look at doing modified ultrafiltration or prophylactic peritoneal dialysis, we tend to see in those patients less urine output just because we're doing some of the work of the kidneys. And so I was wondering if you could comment on that and how that, um, and perhaps you'll get into this later when you when you talk about the need for a new definition of AKI and these neonates, but um, if you could comment a little bit on that discordance and um, how you think that that affected the results of the study. Yeah. 
If you look at the recent AWARE study uh, that also encompassed the use of the urinapa criteria, a very large proportion of patients would have otherwise been missed if we only used um, used the creatinine. Uh, so I think there's a lot of value in, in incorporating the urinapa criteria, irrespective of whether or not we use um, diuretics. Um, you know, things like modified ultrafiltration and PD and all those things can affect the quantification of um, serum creatinine, but as you alluded to, they also uh, can affect the um, amount of urine output, especially during that um, first post-operative day or the first couple of post-operative days. And so, um, you know, as time goes by, those patients actually get better by the third post-operative day. So maybe this early rise in creatinine or decrement in urine output is a different phenotype of less clinical importance, um, not no clinical importance, because I don't want to say that these things are not important, but uh, it's the patients who go on to have slow urine output or less urine output and um, continued rise in creatinine that become the ones who uh, turn out to have problems. I don't know if you want to add to that, Jeffrey. No, I think that's right. And I think the, the biggest problem we have is just like, just like you said, Dana, the urine output. Uh, this, uh, this paper really, we, we did two things. We, we really we described the basic epidemiology like classically like we should with the current definition. But we also started to um, talk a little bit, which wasn't surprising to people who do this, but to other people will be surprising start to talk about how this definition is not is not really specific. Um, and so uh, one in, in all these other studies, we see this incredible variability among centers. And in and, and so the, the uh, AKI rate will be 20 percent in one center and 80 percent the other center. Now, why is that true? Some of it may really be real, but a lot of it just is just kind of a, is, is a, a function on the kind of therapies that are going on. And some well, some of them are the ones you mentioned, like PD. Um, we recently uh, did a PD study, and, and it's, it's no secret that people do it clinically, but we definitely showed with data that when you have PD, urine output goes down. And, and because your urine output goes down, by definition, your AKI rate, you have to say those kids have AKI. And, um, and if you say you dry someone out with modified ultrafiltration, this was shown in a study between Michigan and, um, and Boston in a kind of a, a sub-analysis of a previous study, that if one center does modified ultrafiltration, they concentrate and make the creatinines look higher. And so then they have, they looks like they have AKI. And then the other center doesn't have AKI because they didn't do modified ultrafiltration. The most important thing is that when you do, when you can, outcomes between those centers are pretty darn similar. And so there has to be something that uh, is not at work. And, and, and we really, and we showed it, there's only a small percentage. I can't, I don't remember the exact details. I know when it becomes to severe AKI, if you look at people who meet the urine output and serum creatinine for kind of severe AKI, so the worst of the worst, they're stage two or stage three, it's only about 9% of the whole cohort or less that have AKI. And so that, so how, what exactly is the definition? Do you pay attention to creatinine? You pay attention to urine output? In one case, just like Kat said, urine output is functional AKI. If your urine output goes away, you have AKI, except unless you do PD or, or they're really dehydrated. So what exactly it is, what exactly do you use? What is exactly the definition? And I think this has been a big problem for our field because those who know this field very well know there's been a lot of intervention studies of very promising animal models that show you can mitigate, decrease, prevent, or treat AKI pretty well um, with various therapies like acetaminophen, for instance, and other things like that. But when it comes to the human studies, there's no signal. 
But to me, that's pretty obvious why there's no signal. When you're targeting the wrong definition, when you have kids who have elevated creatinine or decrease, decrease urine output who get placebo, they're going to have a good outcome, you know, because they're already going to have a good outcome anyways. And so you bias everything towards the null. And um, until we know the right definition, uh, we cannot really uh, say all these studies were negative. I, you know, I think it's just equivocal. I think you, the only thing you can say in those studies, when using this definition of AKI, this intervention does not work. And I think we're targeting the wrong one. Um, but a key thing about this, we also want to have a clinical diagnosis that all of us can use at the bedside. Everyone agrees that we need biomarkers show kidney injury. They, they, they show it. But who has biomarkers? Cincinnati, you know, a couple other places that, you know, really, it's not very many people have biomarkers. And so if we want this work to be impactful, um, both, in, you know, our center and other centers in, in the world, smaller centers, we have to be able to find a clinical definition that we can use at the bedside that can diagnose AKI. And because it's important for the clinicians to identify the high-risk cohort, we can't, we can't target right now, just like Kat said, I think 60% of the kids at AKI. We can't target 60% of the kids with intervention and say we're going to make things better. We need to find the highest risk cohort that really has where AKI impacts the outcomes. Feedback I've gotten about this study is that um, people have tried to find holes in the study because there wasn't an outcome association. If there wasn't an outcome, there was, you know, duration of mechanical ventilation, length of stay. If you do all the multivariate analysis and control for all these variables that have never been controlled for before, modified ultrafiltration, bypass, bypass time, whether you get PD or not PD, there, there's no impact on the current death of AKI with outcomes, except the worst of the worst, you know, has an outcome with mortality. I don't think that's surprising to anybody else, anybody that this field. And it's kind of the reason... Well, if you look at SDS, what's the definition of uh, AKI and SDS? Needs dialysis, right? Needs dialysis. That's it. And it's embarrassing to say, but the cardiac surgeons got it right. You know, they 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 know the highest risk cohort. You know, the, those kids who have stage three AKI who don't make urine, who you know anybody you know a person gonna walk off the street and say that kid is AKI, they have it. What we want to do is find this kind of also this there's a there's a middle group. There's a middle group who's at risk. Um, for having bad outcomes that we want to target our intervention trials. We can't do that until we have the right definition. Yeah, I think even more, um, you know, to lend to the definition or needing a better definition is in these neonates who, you know, may go undergo surgery on uh, day of life one or may wait at some centers till day of life 10. And I think the decrement in creatinine or the, you know, rearrangement to baby creatinine versus maternal creatinine is somewhat variable and may take a lot longer, especially in those who have a deranged physiology where there's an imbalance in pulmonary and systemic blood flow. So those you know, for the creatinine portion of the definition, those patients are never going to be able to meet the criteria if they don't have the appropriate decrement, um, as we would expect, you know, through the first week of life. And uh, and then, of course, those are usually the ones who are going to get PD or PD catheters or some other weird stuff in the operating room um, that we're not going to be able to pick up on um, or their urine output's going to be low. And then who knows if they have real AKI or, or not. So we need a better definition. We need, um, and we need to do this in in a way that um, encompasses multi-center because doing this at one center doesn't make the, the results very um, translatable across centers because as you can see from a lot of the, um, of the data presented that centers do things differently and having a uniform approach is the only thing that's likely to make this, these 
therapeutics um, work when we have a definition that works. Yeah, I think the creatinine comment is real important. We all know, you know, the the neonates' creatinine is high when they're born, right? Because it's mother's creatinine. So to put in the numbers, I mean, imagine a kid who gets an operation on day one or day two and their creatinine is 0.8. And so, and then postoperatively for the next three days, their creatinine is one or 1.1. It doesn't meet any criteria. That kid is diagnosed as no AKI by the current criteria. Well, all of us know common sense wise, a kid has a creatinine 1.1, they are in trouble. But if you do a study or, or all the previous studies out there, that 1.1 does not meet the cutoffs and is not in there. And when it should be in there, because everyone <laughs> knows it should, it should not be 1.1 post-op. Yeah, I think you guys put that so well, so comprehensively, just really um, highlighting all the unique characteristics of this neonatal cohort. Where do you think that leaves us? Like, it's 2021. We... You know, we're still having the ongoing um, innovation and and resource development of other testing, biomarkers, or you know, other studies that need to be done. What would be your approach um, as a way that we could like real time, tangibly um, approach these children with the current bedside tools that we have? Would it be like furosemide stress tests or other clinical? Um, markers that you would follow? Like, what would be your advice to clinicians listening that don't have access, as you suggested, to to some of these other um, more um, sensitive tests? Yeah, I don't um, I don't think one thing is going to help us figure this out, right? There's not one test that's going to be the winner of uh, putting the child in the category of, of risk stratification. So I think, you know, from some of the work that I've been doing um, unrelated to this paper, I think you got to do everything. You've got to risk stratify the patient. You've got to do your furosemide stress test. The biomarker can, can direct you um, into, you know, separate phenotypes. And then you have to consider the impact of fluid overload. I mean, that's a whole nother topic that we could spend hours talking about. And that paper is coming down the pipeline from the Nephron Collaborative and the importance of fluid or lack of importance of fluid. So I think, I think, I think this has to be a multi-pronged approach where, um, you know, you do an interventional trial, but you have to really take each of um, the specific elements that have been studied in a vacuum and put them together into one um, big risk stratification approach with or without an intervention to really get the impact. And again, like I cannot stress the importance of doing this in a multi-center approach because of the um, center influence or isolated influence of a specific center on AKI um, on AKI diagnosis or, or um, incidents at that particular center. Coming down the pipeline, as Kat said, this is really the first step. And, and I want to make it clear, we, we, are, we are looking for a clinical diagnosis at the bedside. People don't have access to biomarkers. Well, kidney-specific biomarkers. We have creatinine, for instance. And so at the end of all this, what we hope to have is a risk stratification model that can be applied at the bedside. Um, and so... We have right now the first step in it, the first, this epidemiology manuscript in critical care medicine demonstrates a couple of things. Um, we, it demonstrates that the current definition is not good enough. Um, and so we will look at all the things that Kat said. We will look at creatinines, both absolute values, rises. We will look at urine output. We will look at um, all the all the perioperative you know risk factors. 
um, interoperative risk factors, including demographics. CAT's helping lead a project right now, which is looking at the Lasix furosemide stress test, diuretic challenge that you guys have alluded to, which is an assessment of functional urine output. Um, so we will be um, hopefully this year um, be uh, publishing the first kind of multi-center look at um, uh, furosemide stress test as a functional look at of AKI. And then and then we have the fluid we have their fluid overload manuscript, which is it's in the final revisions and hopefully will be accepted in a journal here pretty soon. Um, so we want to look at all these aspects: creatinine, urine output, fluid balance functional assessment of the kidneys with furosemide, all the demographic and, and perioperative risk factors, and all, use all these and create a risk model. Do I think that we can use one model for all patients? I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't know. Well, we will find that out, but we want to be able to identify the high-risk cohort, you know, basically who is at high risk of having AKI. We want to identify that as closely as possible to surgery. You know, there's some work, and Kat's been doing some of this stuff too, of of actually looking at biomarkers interoperatively to be able to identify patients, you know, and so those things are so interesting. But again, the problem is people don't have that stuff. You know, we don't have it, you know, and and is is everyone going to get that based on a research that shows it's important? No, they're not. They're gonna they're gonna have urine output, fluid balance, uh, creatinines, and um, and then a risk model, hopefully. And hopefully, we can apply this and identify with a pretty good accuracy who's at highest risk for having AKI. And then that's where we start the interventions. I think biomarkers are very important to kind of uh, um, adjudicate that we got it right. We got it right when we've identified this cohort, but when it comes to all the intervention studies, we want people to be able to participate in these studies. We want the studies to be applicable to people who are in small centers or big centers that don't have access to biomarkers. So that's hopefully the goal, but until we get the, um, the functional assessment of urine output with the diuretic challenge manuscript done. But as soon as that is done, we will then go, we'll take the next step to being able to report to the world what we believe the best definition for AKI is after neonatal cardiac surgery. I did have one, um, actually another thought I wanted to pick your brain on, but it was returning back to the um, protective factors. I will say I, I was surprised as Jeffrey, as you mentioned, other people commenting, you know, like the traditional... Um, risk factors didn't sort of pan out, um, age and surgical complexity, single ventricle physiology, cardiopulmonary bypass. And I think you guys addressed that already really beautifully. Um, the other one I was surprised at, though, was the protective factors of, um, was it preoperative feeding and postoperative um, open sternum? And I was wondering if you could comment on your thoughts around those findings. If you're skeptic, you'll say, well, Basically, what you did um, is identify the sicker kids because those did not get fed, and um, and so we fed we fed the ones that were not as sick, and therefore they you're not having much AKI. Well, you know that's what the multivariate analysis is for, and that's why we um, there's an immense amount of preoperative uh, risk factor. We use all the STS risk factors to identify any kid who preoperatively was sick, you know inotropes, lactates, um, mechanical ventilation demographic status. So this was this was independent of things like being a hypoplastic left heart, for instance. And so if you're not a skeptic like myself, who believes firmly that um, preoperative feeding is important to improve outcomes, as I have published on this a handful of times, uh, and it is an idea of swimming in my head for another multi-center collaborative coming soon. So 
um, be, sh be sure to watch out for it and join up. Um, but I, I believe that, um, and it's shown in, 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 um, in pre micro preemies and small babies, that if you feed a kid, you decrease inflammation, you stimulate the immune system. And so I think feeding um, preps these children for the big inflammation um, uh, insult that are about to go, um, go through with cardiac surgery, decreases the translocation of bad things in the gut, um, and decreases the whole inflammatory response of bypass. Can I prove that? No. Do I want to prove that? Yes. Would it be pretty easy to prove? Yeah, I think it would be actually pretty easy to prove this. And um, so that's that's my belief in it. Um, there's another single center study, um, I think out of um, I think it was out of Louisiana, that also demonstrated previously that um, preoperative feeding was protective for AKI after after cardiac surgery. So this is a multi center, very powerful finding. Um, I think it's a real finding, but it's there now. So now it's hypothesis generating. We can, can try to prove it or ignore it however we want to. Yeah. If I could just add, um, you know, I think this brings to light that um, the kidneys are not just the kidneys, right? There's like this organ crosstalk that happens, um, you know, with the kidneys and um, the lungs. You know, that's why these patients generally spend longer time on the ventilator. The kidneys and the heart and cardiorenal syndrome. There's emerging evidence that the kidneys and the immune system interact. And there's um, emerging evidence um, that the kidneys and the microbiome interact. And so when, when the kidneys become injured, um, that can affect all of those other things. But if you've fed them before, as Jeffrey alluded to, perhaps you are giving them better substrate, better um, amino acids or whatever you know molecular thing it is that you need for reparative purposes that can overcome the injury that's already happened. So um, I think this the systemic effects of acute kidney injury um, are uh, just beginning to be unraveled and they're really cool. It's a big interest of mine and I think it's going to take the field far um, with regards to where we can go next. That's incredible work that you all are doing, and I definitely join Sadie in commending you and the Nephron group for this important work. And thank you so much for the, the great summary of the, the first of what sounds like many papers coming from the Nephron group. Yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to, you know, all the centers who contributed data because if they uh, didn't agree to go back and collect the data for this um, kidney specific module, we wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this. So it, you know, it takes a village, it takes a team of dedicated people, um, which I think uh, is really commending um, and, and great across the pediatric cardiac ICU collaborative in the country and, and starting to be more around the world. So it's awesome. Yeah, I agree. This is awesome effort. Um, it's very hard to get, uh, we, we have a very busy job, as you all know, and um, it's very hard to get people to do um, extra work. But when you when you have a topic that's important and um, and people believe they can make a difference, we will, we will recruit, um, people will do a little bit of extra work. Well, we're grateful for champions like you guys who can have visions and organize and um, get momentum, so, you know, to rally behind these projects. Awesome. Thank you. Super enriching and super humbling. Thank you again, Dr. Gist and Dr. Alton, for speaking with us today about AKI. And we super enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And visit our website, pcics.org. 
where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and